So this was inspired, this series, by a book by Larry Crabb um, called The 66 Love Letters, going over every uh, chapter. We encourage you to read that book as we go through this. It's a very easy read. It's challenging. It'll make you cry in places. At least it did for me. I cry kind of easy, though. But one of the things that he says at the very beginning of this book, which we have said every week, is the Bible is a love story that begins with a divorce. And everything from the third chapter of Genesis to the end of Revelation is the story of a betrayed lover um, wooing us back into his arms so we can enjoy the love of family and fellowship forever. God loves us. God pursues us. God doesn't give up on us. But it's not even about us. And this is what we're really going to run into inside of this series, is this is about his plan and, and his affection for us achieving this plan. And so over these next three books, we see a rebellious Israelite people, God loving them through all of their rebellion while they fight their own selfishness and entitlement that lives inside of them, that believes I should do whatever is right for me. So we're going to jump right in to Joshua. Um, A lot of you are familiar with probably some of this book. Um, Joshua opens uh, with the death of Moses, and they really set up Joshua very much like a Moses figure. Um, Even as he leads the people into the promised land, which Moses wasn't able to do, they split the Jordan um, just like Moses did uh, with the Red Sea. You see all these similarities in how they live their lives and how they follow, how they lead the people. Um, Joshua was a good leader. He was good at following the instructions of the Lord. And God is very clear about as they enter the promised land, there's this other community, the Canaanites, that God wants to separate his people from. He says, I don't want you doing business with them. I mean, very, it's not out of racism. It's out of you are set apart, holy and sanctified. Follow the Torah Show the very character of who I am by how you live your lives to the people in this land. Um, so they cross the, the uh, Jordan, and they're about to head into battle. And uh, Crab makes this very interesting um, uh, analogy inside of the 66 love letters. He says, notice that entering the land, crossing the Jordan, involved no conflict, only trust. But once in the land, there were battles to fight. Invite Christians to live for Jesus and imply that the Christian life is all about blessing, about entering a land filled with milk and honey, with no real battles, and they will all come forward. Churches that never deal with the real fight that following Jesus requires often grow large, but mostly with small Christians. The tension of suffering in the battles that we fight as followers of Christ, expose in us what we really believe about who God is. And Joshua is about to enter some fights. Right before he goes to the Battle of Jericho, which if you're not familiar with, there's a VeggieTales song about it that will teach you a lot. (laughs) Um, God gives him, you know, some, uh, a crazy way to fight this battle, but um, he gives him a couple of instructions that, if you lose the humanity in the story and don't realize that, like, these are real people, you can, like, skim over this. But he says, all right, what I need you to do before you go fight is circumcise your whole army. These are real people, okay? So I want you to picture Braveheart for a moment in your, in your mind, okay? 
You know the scene where it's like they look at the army and they're like all freaked out and they're like, oh, what do we do? And he hops off the horse and he like kicks it to the side and, and he's like, here we go. I picture Joshua saying, hey, we're going to go fight this for the Lord. He's led us this far. Here we go. Are you ready to fight? Now drop your pants. <laughs> there has to be some scripture that's left out where somebody says, and do what? You know? I, okay. Don't you lose the humanity in what you're reading, okay? But before Joshua goes after the circumcision, and I assume some healing, um, they, uh, before he goes to, to fight the battle of Jericho, Joshua has this important encounter. And we see it in Joshua 5. It says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. He basically said, neither. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord, the captain of the Lord's angel armies. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. See, God steps in at the very beginning and says, hey, don't lose focus. This is not about you. It's about me, me fulfilling my plan. God says, it's not whether I'm on your side. It's whether you are on mine. And sometimes for us, we say, I have a noble purpose. God must be behind what I'm doing. This isn't always the case. We want to know where God, God is asking for our total devotion and nothing less. And Joshua asking this question exposes something that lingers in all of us, which is this entitlement and narcissism that looks at ourself and skews our view of what God might be doing around us. We get so consumed about the direction that we're going, and granted, you're about to go to war. It's understandable you see a guy holding a sword, but that's why God is so gracious to say, here's a reminder. You're fighting this for me. And he goes on to fight the battle of Jericho in the weirdest way possible, maybe of any battle that's ever been fought, to just show, I told you it was me who was going to fight this. Okay? Israelites are pumped, right? They're like, where can we lose? They go into their next battle in a city called Ai. I think that's how you say it. Ai. It could be like, Ai. I don't know. Okay. Um, and... They get destroyed. They uh, get run off. 36 of their men are killed. It's bad. Joshua rips his clothes and calls out to, Jesus, to God, why, why, why would you even send us if you knew we were going to lose? We just marched around this thing. And the Lord says, Israel has sinned against me because, you see, he gave these explicit instructions about how to fight Jericho and also what not to do. Do not Plunder what you find there in precious gold and things like that. Don't take it. That was very common in war. People would come in and the soldiers were allowed to take things. It was part of what intrigued them to go to war. They knew what they were supposed to do and they did not do it. So they go through the army and they figure out this guy named Achan confesses that he um, did take things, buried it in his tent so that it wouldn't be found. And he's dealt with harshly. He's stoned and his family is stoned. Um, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a rough story, but I want you to consider this for a moment. The consequences of your sin 
have a lot of gravity, but it's not just for you and you alone. 36 men were killed, and now this army that felt indestructible feels deflated because they just got destroyed because of the sin of this one man. It's in our selfishness of our sin that we believe the consequences are for us and us alone. The collateral damage of our sin affects more than just you and your relationship with God. As a pastor, I deal with this all the time. It's the hardest thing to deal with. Someone will come into my office and they'll sit down and they've been following the Lord um, the best way they know how, honoring God, but the life they lived before and the sin nature that they just uh, succumbed to, surrendered to, that collateral damage is following them in the, the acts of their children, in their relationship with past spouses or their current spouse, um, and their parents, so many things. And it's the hardest thing as a pastor to say, you are doing things right. We can't fix this right now. Believe the Lord is working. You know, in this selfishness that we see of like Aiken stealing this money and things, this is... This lives in all of us. And so in the same way that um, Joshua gets reminded by this Lord of the angel armies, you know, hey, this is about me, I want you to consider how you pray. When you approach the king of kings, when you say, I'm going to be with God, how do you speak with him? Do you speak with him as someone who has authority over you? Or do you speak to him as someone like a servant? Fix this. Change this. When the disciples come to Jesus and say, teach me how to pray, God. I, I, I look at you and I see this intimacy with you and the Father that I really want. And Jesus says, well, pray, pray like this. Abba, Father, Daddy, holy is your name. May your kingdom come, your will be done. This is all directionally at God. You are in control, and I know this, okay? The Lord's Prayer is, gets weird. We don't even call it the Lord's Prayer around here, but then you know what I'm talking about. We call it the Disciples' Prayer. Um, but last week, we talked about the Ten Commandments being a mirror that we stand in front of to show us our own unrighteousness. We can use the Lord's Prayer in the same way, to look at it and say, do I pray with this same sort of heart? Or does the Lord's Prayer expose a selfishness and entitlement in me that I'm just asking him to fix everything in me instead of what would you teach me, God, because your plans are far better than my plans. I'll be honest, even some song lyrics I struggle with because of an entitlement that lives in each one of us. Even biblically accurate song lyrics we sing often, I am a child of God. That's a biblically accurate song lyric. But if you have a high spirit of entitlement, you might sing that like you're the son or daughter of a rich rock star. And you love the privileges that come along with being a child of God and not doesn't provoke honor and the desire to live a life that says, I'm a child of God. He calls me a co-heir with Christ. I stand in awe of that and lay it at his feet. Let's say uh, judging our hearts, evaluating how we feel about things, you'll see even more how that becomes necessary as we kind of jump into judges. But as Joshua closes, they end up fighting a bunch of battles and claim the promised land. 
Joshua ends with um, him separating up the land into the tribes, um, just as it was foretold. And things are looking all right. Joshua begs his people, follow the Torah. Show these people who don't know who God is, who God is, by how you act and by um, obeying these commands that God has given us. And set yourself holy and sanctified for his purposes. So then we come into the book of Judges. And as soon as Joshua dies at the beginning of this book, everything goes downhill. Almost immediately, the Israelites start becoming just like the people around them. It's a brutal book. This is not the book you read to your kids at night. There's a ton of violence and descriptive. It's rough going through it. But what we see is something that reoccurs over and over again, which I'm going to call the Israelite Rebellion Spiral, or the IRS. <laughs> now you'll remember it. Okay. Make any sort of analogies you want. I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, so here's what would happen. Okay. The Israelites would see the culture around them, see that it lended itself. See, the Canaanites were extremely immoral, especially when it came to sex and things of that nature. They were also highly involved in like child sacrifice to their idols. I mean, this was very contradictory to what God was, how God was calling his people to live. So that's why God wants this separation. But they immediately saw, well, this feeds this need in me, some of this, this selfishness that I kind of lean towards anyway, and so they would sin. After they lived in that sin for a while, God would see, would deliver them to their enemies. Say, so you, you want to do this? Okay. Deliver them to their enemies. They become enslaved, jailed. Things got really bad for them. So there was a series of oppression. Then they would cry out to God, who they had heard stories of him delivering them in the past and, and all the all the things. This covers 480 years, the book's book of Judges. Okay? They cry out to God, would you deliver us? Be clear, this is not repentance. It's not repentance. It's just save me, this sucks. And God delivers them. Not because of their repentant heart and their purity, but because he's a God who loves them and he has a plan to accomplish He delivers them in the form of a judge. And so just for clarity, a judge is not a king. It's not a person with like a powder white wig or anything like that. It's like a, kind of like a tribal leader, right? Samson was a judge. Gideon was a judge. There's like 12 um, that they talk about in Judges. Um, and God would use this person, would empower this person to help the Israelites rise up. And they would be delivered. And then they would move into the last stage, which we'll call peace. But peace is where the danger really came. Because they would start looking back. They for, would forget just what they were delivered out of. And they would come back to sin again. And the spiral would continue and continue. And if you read through the book of Judges, chapter 3, I'm pretty sure, gives you this as a summary. And it happens over and over and over again. Almost every chapter in this book starts with, then the sons of Israel did evil in the Lord's eyes. It 
And it's clear when we look at this order that the crying out um, is not repentance because they don't steer back to the way that they were going or to the way God asked them to go. They just were delivered out of where they were. And repentance is changing your source. Saying, I believe what you say is true, God, and I'm going to line up with those things. And entitlement never leads to repentance. It leads you to demand. This is just a reminder in this area of peace, and as they're going back to sin, and they look at it, and their selfishness of Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? My immediate desires eclipse what I've known from history will make me forget what I know to even be true because this is what I want right now and I'm entitled for it. So when we look, I think my voice just cracked. When we look at the IRS, <laughs> where, where are we as a people, as a culture, inside of this spiral right now, do you think? Just consider this for a moment, okay? We're not in oppression, okay? No one tried to stop you from walking in this door this morning. Or you're not threatened for worshiping here. You're not, uh, not the sort of oppression we're talking about. Some of us might be crying out to God for specific things, but not in this sort of way where we're saying, free us from depression. We're not in deliverance. So we must be somewhere between peace and sin. We've had things so good so long that we start letting a culture around us affect even how we see God. Because make no doubt about it, the story of Judges and the story of Joshua and the story of Ruth are about two cultures. One that's wanting to honor God and one that is far from it and God trying to achieve his goal and achieving it through these imperfect people. And have no doubt that we are in a culture clash right now as every other civilization, do we not live in a culture that asks us to compromise what we believe? How perverse has our culture become when it comes to things about sex and even twisted in marriage? And the culture around you, our heart looking for a justification. We see someone who's lifted up as a Christian leader and, and we hear what they say and and. All of a sudden it goes, oh no, that works for me. So I'm going to adapt that into my whole image of God. Let me give you an example. A friend of mine uh, who's in ministry, he asked me to go to lunch with him one day, and I said, sure, I like food. So we went, we were sitting there. He says, well, he started and said, um, I, do you ever think you married the wrong person? And I said, me? And he goes, no, no, no. I mean, just as a thought ever come by your head, you know? I said, no. And he goes, I think God is asking me to divorce my wife. And I remember sitting there looking at him, going, well, I can tell you he's not. <laughs> can we leave? <laughs> you know? I mean, that's outside of the character of who God is. And because you've built some story that the one existed out there for you to have some purpose, like this is some Saved by the Bell episode, 
That's not how life works. And you made a commitment. He is not calling you to leave your wife. But the culture around him has twisted his view of who God was. And this is exactly what we see in Judges. They move so far away from God, they don't even remember his very character. The prime example, although it's all over this, is the story of a judge named Jephthah. Jephthah made a vow before God, if you give me a clear victory over the Ammonites, then I will give to God whatever comes out of my door of my house to meet me when I return um, in one piece from among the Ammonites. I'll offer it up as a sacrificial burnt offering. He's saying, if I come back and I win, God, whatever member of my family comes out and greets me, I'll sacrifice them to you. Who does that sound like? The very culture God is trying to separate you from that sacrifices their children to God. He comes home and his daughter's the first one to greet him. And he says, sorry, I made this vow. And context is so important here. Because if you just flip through your Bible and you read that verse, you think, like, our God accepts child sacrifice? Because they don't make the point that I'm making. You have to read from the beginning and realize the spiral getting darker and darker. And they forget the very character of who their God is. So I guess the question is, is child sacrifice part of our culture? We talk about things like abortion. This could be preaching to the choir. What idols are we sacrificing those kids to? Our own pleasure, our comfort, our future plans. But probably more common than that is sacrificing your kids to a culture around them that wants to say everything we say here is bogus. And this is difficult to be a parent. We did that internet safety class here. And uh, to quote Liz who taught that, if you're a parent and you're not exhausted, you're probably not parenting. I mean, that, it's tough guiding these kids. But culturally, many of us inside the church expect the pastors of the church and the youth pastor to teach your kids who God is but we get them for a very minimal amount of time. We're going to proclaim the word here for 30 minutes. And maybe the 30 times a year you're here, when how many hours are they spending on the internet and with their friends in, in a school with teachers who say what we're saying is stupid? And you have to teach them who God is. They need to know the character of God. And that's why we come to be in community. That's why we put you in small groups. How do you know the character of God? You, you know it from being with him. You know it from the word. You know it from being in community where you roll over together what God is doing and, and seeing him work. So you can say something like, I think God is asking me to divorce my wife. And someone can say, he's not. We hear stupid crap like that all the time. If you're going to sin, don't do it. Don't try to make it lighter on you by saying God asked you to do it. Just say, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. I can deal with that. Don't, 
such blasphemy to say, the Lord asked me to do something outside of his will. I mean, that, that is the, uh, when they say, do not use the Lord's name in vain, the actual, that's not like saying GD. It's actually, the way a Jew reads that is, do not carry the Lord's name in vain. Do not do evil in the name of the Lord. Do not say, do not go do something and say, well, God told me to do that. When it's clearly outside of who he is. Our understanding of who God is must come from him. Culture will slowly water down and twist our view of his nature. And Judges is the tale of that over and over again. And in the last books, it is repeated three times, four times. In those days, Israel was without a king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This leads to the, Israel's first civil war. They forgot their God. They did as they pleased, and it led to their destruction. Uplifting stuff, huh? Yeah. Um, it was actually a lot of fun to study. I encourage you to read it. Know it in context. Realize the darkness, the evil that can live in any of us. We've got to be surrendered. So then we come to the book of Ruth. Ruth's pretty easy. <laughs> it's four chapters. I encourage you to read it. You can read it this afternoon, and you'll understand it for the most part. Ruth is the story that following Jesus and following this God is a bumpy road, but God is working in and around you, even when you don't see it. In and amongst your suffering, you can choose to grumble and complain, but God is working for your good. My real-life example of this is the story of my wife. She shared it up here on Mother's Day. She was, uh, when she was a child, um, her parents made some decisions that left them homeless. It was her and her uh, six siblings at the time. Eventually it was ten. Um, but at the time, seven, and she's the second oldest. They were homeless. She was knocking on doors asking for food to feed the younger ones. Um, total chaos and pain and heartache. Um, and in the midst of all of this, they separate the kids because um, among some of the aunts, uh, to, because nobody wants to take all seven. <laughs> so they send three, Lisa and two of her sisters, to Georgia. Well, without all the pain and chaos, I don't have my family, people. I don't look back at the sin and the things that, and like be thankful for that. But God was writing a story and knitting things together that I couldn't do. And I wouldn't have her. I wouldn't have my two beautiful kids without the chaos that what seemed out of control, he was redeeming to himself and working inside of that. This is similar, although Ruth is much more significant. Um, so here's a quick overview of Ruth. This lady named... Um, I, I always forget how to say Naomi. <laughs> I always, we uh, know someone in Africa who's like, who says it different, and it always confused my brain. Naomi, okay? She's the mom in this family. Her husband and two sons, they moved to uh, Moab because of famine in Bethlehem. And her two sons marry Moabite women. And uh, the husband dies. Uh, the sons are married to, to these women for 10 years. And it's very important to note, Ruth is one of these Moab women, and she never has a child in 10 years. 
both sons also die. Extreme heartache. This is like one paragraph. All this stuff happens, okay? It, but don't lose the humanity in it, okay? These people are heartbroken. So inside of their pain, very difficult for a widow to, um, to make it. Um, Naomi says to the two daughter-in-laws, go back to your parents, um, and maybe they'll take you in, and you can figure that out. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem and see if I can figure out how to survive. And Ruth, in her loyalty and honor and love, looks at Naomi and says, no, I'm going with you. Your God will be my God. I'll be right beside you. I'm not going to leave you alone. They go back to Bethlehem. This is the short version. You should read it. Um, they go back to Bethlehem. They're basically like homeless, trying to figure things out. And Ruth says, I'm going to go try to find us some food. Starts pulling food off the, the, the edge of a crop, like wheat and barley and stuff. And she meets this guy named Boaz, who owns this land. And Boaz, um, he, he sees something in her. This, this loyalty that she displayed um, to Naomi, he, uh, he notices immediately. He says, I, I'm a... You know, you can do whatever you want here. Whatever you want is yours. Just like the servants who work the land, you can take way more than just what's on the edges that we kind of offer to everybody. So he gives her this favor. She goes back uh, to Naomi, and Naomi says, where'd you get the food? She tells the story, says, I met this guy named Boaz. Naomi's ecstatic. She says, no way. Boaz is my kinsman redeemer, which was a a family member whose job it was to help people in distress and to make them right. And one of their jobs was if a man died, like your brother or something, you're going to marry that wife to pull her back into the family and therefore you get the protection of that family and the unit is strong again. And so they start thinking, maybe maybe he'll marry you. And so the story kind of goes on. There's a little bit of... um, uh, there's more interaction with Boaz and Ruth. Eventually, Ruth gets a little um, uh, aggressive. <laughs> okay? Um, she stops wearing her mourning clothes. She ha- was wearing clothes that told everyone she was mourning the death of her husband. She starts putting on the nice robe, right? She puts on the uh, high heel sandals, make her calves look good. <laughs> That's a slight elaboration. Don't look for that verse. Okay? She goes to Boaz and says, hey, will you marry me? And he says he will. A couple other things happen. Read the book. But here is what's so important. When you're living a life of obedience to God, and you suffer setbacks and hardship, it is not an indicator that you're on the wrong path. God can use these things to bring about his plan. And he is at work in the midst of even our complaining for our good. This is a rocky road following Jesus. This reminds me of something Tim says all the time, that live with heaven as the backdrop. See what God is doing. Be reminded of how you act, that your greatest battle has been fought. Mountain bikers, if you're a mountain biker, there's some, a principle that they use. I went mountain biking once with my daughter Natalie. I thought I was going to die. Um, it was very scary. Um, but they have this principle, do, don't look at the trees, look at the path. If you look at the trees, you'll hit them. You'll go right where you're looking. Okay? 
Hitting a tree is not good. Be focused. Look to see what God is doing in and around you. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And you, you are called according to his purpose. You're called an ambassador. You're carrying the word and the love of God into this world. How you act, how you treat people is a declaration of the God you serve. So the beautiful thing inside Ruth is we see Boaz take her as his bride. She becomes pregnant. The barren Ruth becomes pregnant. She gives birth to a son named Abed. Abed, when he grows up, gives birth to a son named Jesse. Jesse grows up, gives birth to a son named David. God's plan at work. And in the midst of the chaos and death and famine, God was arranging something that only he could arrange. And you see Naomi shift through this book as the matriarch of this family, moving from bitterness and God has forsaken me to God is redeeming the living in the dead inside of this plan. And they celebrate the, the women of the town and with Ruth said, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. For God has set us up for success in the kingdom, but the road is rocky and you will fight the entitlement that lives inside of you daily and slowly it starts yelling quieter at you. But we have to identify that it's there. We have to realize when it's pulling so hard at us and realize what is God by knowing his very nature. And how do we know that? Through his word, through his very presence, through community. This life of following Jesus was never meant to be done solo. Being community. That's why I love this place. The tightness of this community, and I see men come around men and women come around women, especially in times of suffering, to press into what God might be doing, what God might be wanting to teach you in this moment, what he might be wanting to bring about. Don't discount it. He longs to use you. 